Praise the Lord. I got the light. Okay, good news or bad news? The bad news. The bad news is, the bad news is, you got to listen to me one more time. The good news is, this is the last time. We're going to be done. This is a, a, a lesson number six in our six lessons on apologetics. And I think the most important one, at least in my view, uh, we uh, uh, talked last week about the reliability of the New Testament, how we know it, it contained the actual truth and how it's been maintained over uh, all this time. Now, tonight we're going to build off of that. Now that we know the New Testament is reliable and can be trusted, we're going to take a look at, at the fundamental message of the New Testament, which is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the significance and the importance of that. And we're going to see how we know that can be true and what that means to us as we go through this this evening. Now, I'm going to begin, as I always do, with a passage of Scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later to look at um, the early part of that chapter. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, uh, um, and then uh, uh, a piece of verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Now think about that. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is not worth anything at all. And he goes on in verse 19 and says, and we should be pitied more than anyone else for believing all this nonsense. A while back, my wife and I rented this movie called The Prestige. And the Prestige is a, is a movie about magicians, magic, and this, you know, it's, a, it's just a story but it's about this magician. He does these things, and it's got a storyline with it. But I've always been fascinated a little bit about these guys because I know that... Uh, got it? Okay, excellent. Thank you. Magic. It's magic. <laughs> but anyway, I've always been fascinated by magic because, you know... I, I know it's, it's just illusion. It's not real. I'm not dumb enough to believe any of that stuff. But I try to figure it out. Whenever I see it, I'm always trying to figure out, how, how are they doing that? You know, I know it's not real. But it looks so real. Well, some people think that the resurrection of Jesus is about the same thing. It's kind of like magic. It didn't really happen. And those that thought it happened, well, they were just, just an illusion. They were fooled. Or they just made up a lie. Well, here's the thing. What makes the resurrection so important is that it represents what really, what's really significant about the Christian faith. Without it, our faith is worthless. It's not that the cross is not important. The cross is very important. But without the resurrection, the meaning of the cross goes away because Jesus is nothing more than just another dead prophet, just like every other dead prophet. That's the difference. I had... Um, the opportunity to work with a, a guy, um, a guy by the name of Dr. Lawrence. We'll just leave it at that as his name. And I worked with him for several weeks. He's a Jewish fellow, and I was trying to convince him that Yahshua, Jesus, was his, the Messiah, his Messiah, as well as mine. And we went through this thing. I met with him. I don't know how many weeks it was, but quite a few weeks. Some weeks he'd bring his son in with him, and we said it, and we would talk. And I finally got to the point where I was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And that's where it all came unglued. Because he looked me right in the face and he says, I'm a man of science. 
people do not raise from the dead. They're dead to dead. Don't come back to life. You can talk to me about an afterlife, but you can't talk to me about people coming back to life. And if you tell me that I have to believe this Jesus rose from the grave to be a Christian, I have to believe that. We're done. Don't talk to me anymore. We're through. I will not believe it. I was crushed. At that point, I didn't know how to respond. I had no answer for the most important thing that, uh, of the Christian faith. I could not give this man an, an answer for it. I left him with that doubt. I tried to no avail. I was not affected at all. So um, why is the resurrection so important? Here's the thing. Everything, everything comes down to Jesus being who he claimed to be. It all comes down to who he claimed to be. And everything he claimed to be comes down to the resurrection. That, that simple, that plain, that's what it is. Therefore, it's essential that we as Christ followers not only accept this as a fact, but are prepared and equipped to be able to show that it is true. It's not just something we can believe because we're told it. That some pastor gets up on Sunday and tells us on Easter that Jesus rose from the dead. That's good. But we know it's true. We have historical facts to show that it's true. And all the evidence, when it's examined, the, the preponderance of that evidence is going to lead to a logical conclusion that the resurrection and all that it implies is real. So this evening, we're going to spend our time examining a couple important things. First of all, we're going to take a look at the, uh, at the hard proof for the validity of the resurrection. Then we're going to examine the implications of that proof as it relates to the identity of Jesus and how that impacts us today. So that's our goal as we go through it this evening, go through this, this examination. So how do we know that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened? What are the proofs? Well, three major arguments in favor. We'll look at these this evening. Number one, uh, as strange as it may seem to you, the first thing you've got to look at is, did Jesus actually die? Right? If he, if he didn't die, he couldn't have been rose from the dead. So we've got to make sure that he's dead. And there's a lot of people, a lot of skeptics, who don't believe Jesus was ever crucified. Or if he was crucified, he didn't die. He just swooned. He was, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't dead. So either he, he, somebody else was in his place, or he died and he wasn't, he wasn't really dead, he just thought he was, or it never happened, the event never happened. A lot of people believe that. People from other religions believe that. People of skeptics, atheists, can uh, believe that. So it's important to, to determine that he actually did raise from the dead. And he only rose from the dead if he was dead. So we're going to take a look at that. And then we're going to take a look at the positive evidences that correspond to this historical and literal nature of the death and resurrection of Christ. And those two alone is all we need. It's all we need. Those two alone should be enough to prove the validity of the resurrection. But we're going to look at one other third thing, one other thing, a third thing, that I think is just as important, if not more so. I'm going to call it the icing on the cake, and that's the disciples' faith. We'll take a look at how the resurrection impacted the followers of Jesus. So, how do we know he actually died on the cross? Well, if he didn't die, he was either one unbelievably good actor, or had remarkable recovery powers. In fact, more recovery powers than anybody who ever lived in history. He was beaten beyond recognition. 
He had to drag a heavy cross for many miles. He was nailed to that. He hung there for six hours. He had a spear running to his side, all the way up probably to the sack of his heart, that far end. Besides, the Romans were professional executors, executionists, maybe that's the right word. They were very, very good at what they did. No one left the cross alive. And they made sure of it. They made sure. That was their job, to make sure nobody left the cross alive. In fact, their life was at stake, if they did. So they were going to make sure that everybody came down from that cross was, in fact, dead. We'll take a look at some of the things that we know that uh, they used to, to test to make sure people were dead. The first thing, it's called, I call it my old, the army method, push-ups, but not these kind of push-ups. Here's the thing. When they nail someone on the cross the way the Romans did, the purpose of the nails was not to hold them on the cross. They just tie them on the cross to hold them up there. The purpose of the nails was for pain and agony. Because when they hang you on the cross and brace your feet and put nails in your feet, that hurts. But here's the thing. When you hang up on the cross, you can't breathe if you hang there. As you sag like this, all the weight in your diaphragm will suffocate you. You're not able to breathe. So in order for you to breathe, when you're hanging there for those six hours, Jesus had to push up to take a breath. And every time he did was the pain, the pain of those nails. So the Romans wanted them to suffer, and so that's what they did. And so they knew when someone was dead, when they no longer was pushing up, they knew they had died. Because they couldn't live. It was impossible to live when you're just hanging there with dead weight. You will suffocate. In fact, a, a doctor in um, uh, Germany did an experiment. He hired some college students, and I, I don't know why a college student would be this foolish, but he actually hired some college students to, to be crucified. Now, he didn't nail them to a cross. <laughs> so he just had them hang up there, tied them up, and let, but he left his, the feet hanging so they couldn't push. And he timed See how long it would take them to pass out. And the average time was 12 minutes. 12 minutes before they passed out. Now, he took them down. He didn't leave them up there past the time that they were starting to pass out. But he, he estimated that they, they probably would not have been able to last more than 30 minutes before they died. So he confirmed what the Romans already knew. Put a person on the cross. If he can't push up with his feet, he's going to die. In, um, uh, a few years ago, they discovered a skeleton in Jerusalem, and uh, uh, it's the skeleton of a crucified man that dates back to the first century. So sometime around Jesus' time, thereabouts, or shortly thereafter, this when the skeleton, this person, he had a name. They named him. I don't know if it's his real name or not. Probably not. They call him uh, Johanan. Johanan. And uh, anyway, the skeleton had na nail prints in his wrists. In his uh, ankles, in fact, one of the ankles still had the, 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 the nail in it, the spike, in it, and his legs were broken. So that was sort of a, a proof, archaeological proof, that that's how the Romans crucified people, that no one left the cross alone uh, or, or alive. Um, in fact, uh, the, a Roman uh, writer by the name of Quintilian, he wrote to, about the, how the Romans crucified people, and uh, uh, one of the things he wrote about was that 
it was customary, customary practice of the Romans. If they had any doubt about life, they would use a spear or a sword to ram it inside their side, up in under the rib cave, to make sure they were dead. So they had the two things, the pushing up to see if they could breathe, and then just to make sure, in goes the spear or the sword. And they were watching for the blood and the fluid to flow out. That's how they knew the person was dead, because one of two things had taken place. If the blood mixed with fluid flows out of the wound, then they either made it all the way up to hit the sack around the heart, or the person had been dead for a while, and then when you're hanging, that gravity pulls fluid and blood down into your abdomen. And so when they pierce that, it will naturally flow out. So one of the two, they knew for sure that the person was dead. So he couldn't breathe, he wasn't pushing up, and the blood and the fluid would uh, come from the, from the body. And here's the thing. The fact that this fluid and blood came from, from Jesus' wound proved that he was indeed dead. In fact, one of the reasons they didn't break his legs was because they, they knew he was already dead because he wasn't, he wasn't pushing up to breathe. The two thieves, they were. So they broke their legs. They broke the legs so they couldn't push up because it was time to take him down from the cross. They were ready for him to die. So that's what they did. No one left the cross alive. And they had all these safeguards to make sure no one left the cross alive. So if Jesus didn't die, he would have had to have fooled the Roman soldiers who were professionals at killing people, and their own life was at stake. He would have had to fool the men and women who prepared him for the tomb. He would have had to recover enough to be able to roll away a 1.5-ton sealed rock from the inside. Remember, the rock is on the outside. There, this, and it's, it's bigger than the hole of the tombs. Jesus is on the inside. And that 1.5-ton rock is sitting in a, in a trough. They really roll it over, and then there's a little groove, and it just pops in there. So Jesus would have had to remove a 1.5-ton rock from the inside with no handles, no way to grip that rock in order to get out after being beaten and hung on a cross and had a spear run in his side. And then he would have had to overpower the guards or be sufficiently good enough to sneak by them, then walk miles to get to his disciples, and then appear to them as such that they believed that he had rose from the dead. In order for him to have done that, that that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. It didn't happen. It couldn't have happened. So where did this leave us? If Jesus actually died and we believed he was uh, resurrected, then here's, here's what has to be. We're forced then to look at the evidence to support the resurrection. It either exists or it doesn't exist. And if you can prove Jesus was resurrected, then it must have been by some sort of supernatural act because it couldn't have been natural. Impossible. So, the proof that we're going to look at tonight falls into two categories. There's biblical proof and non-biblical proof. And the fact, there's actually 12 historical events about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that are considered to be the minimal facts that even critical scholars, people don't believe in the Bible, accept as being true. And we'll look at some of those things as we go through some of these things uh, um, 
this evening. So we're going to look at both the biblical and non-biblical, at least some pieces. We're not looking at all of it, but some of the biblical and non-biblical historical facts that prove the validity of the resurrection. First, let's take a look at the non-biblical. Sometime within 20 to 120 years after Jesus' death, there were 19 ancient non-Christian sources that collaborate over 100 facts about Jesus' life teachings, death and resurrection. Non-biblical, 19. And actually, there's, there's more than that, but these, these are ones that are pretty, pretty solid. So we want to focus on some of these this evening. Some of these I, we uh, looked at uh, uh, last week. Uh, you see the list up there. You'll recognize uh, the name from last week. Uh, I want to focus on uh, uh, the, the latter part, the four or five uh, of the, the last ones. But we'll go through them all real quick. Uh, Talus, a uh, Roman uh, uh, historian, A.D. 52, wrote about the uh, crucifixion and about the eclipse and the earthquake and things like that. That's pretty close, A.D. 52. I mean, that is, what? Do the math. That's 30 years. I mean, excuse me, 20 years. 20 years. Been 20 years of the, resurre- uh, of the, uh, the uh, resurrection itself. And Tacitus, another Roman historian, wrote about uh, the life of Jesus and things that uh, went on. Uh, Pliny, the Roman uh, governor, uh, likewise. Lucian, a Greek satirist, likewise, did, uh, wrote about these things. Here's one I didn't give you last week. Phlegon. Phlegon is, a, is an important witness because he was uh, a slave of the Roman emperor Hadrian. And that was a big deal. And he was freed. The emperor freed him. But one of the things he wrote about and testified is about the resurrection of Jesus. He talked about the crucifixion itself and some of the events like the earthquake and that sort of thing. And then he talked about Jesus being alive. And, and he is the, the only one that I know of that gives a non-biblical account of the fact that this resurrected Jesus actually still had the marks of the crucifixion on his body. Most of the non-biblical sources do not, do not mention that. But Phlegon does. So it's a really important one. Jewish Talmud, we talked about that last week. It does talk about um, uh, how his followers of Jesus, this one that they crucified, um, uh, believed that he was the Messiah, but they also believed that he had risen from the dead. And uh, 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 the Jewish historian Josephus from the first century, he talks about how he, uh, uh, the, the followers of Jesus uh, talk, uh, uh, testified that they had seen him alive, that he came back to life, he was resurrected. We also know from the early ju- uh, uh, church fathers uh, between A.D. 90 and A.D. 150, there's at least six major writings of these church leaders that affirm their firm belief, absolute belief, in the resurrection of Jesus and His deity. So these are not in the Bible, but there are people who believed and gave testimony and wrote about it, the resurrection of Jesus, very early on. Even um, uh, several um, Gnostic writers back in the late 2nd uh, century and, and a little beyond, would talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you can't really go much by what they say, but that part, they got right. They did talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So, even if you don't want to believe the four gospel accounts, there's a significant number of other accounts that attest to the resurrection of Jesus. So, why is that important? I mean, right, we got it in the Bible, so, so what? Why, why do we need these? Well, it's important because it shows that the resurrection was not just a, uh, a, a mythical story. 
that Christians maybe just made up and added to some of the other accounts of Jesus' life later on. It shows that early, very early on, the center of the church's message was about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even secular historians and secular leaders recognized it. They saw it. They understood it. It was important to them, too, to make note of that. So that's why it's important. So let's take a look now at some biblical accounts about um, uh, the, the resurrection, some things that maybe you didn't um, think about before. Um, remember, we looked at the accuracy last week, the reliability of the New Testament, so now we can dig into the New Testament and see what, a little bit of what, what it says and dissect it a little bit because we know it's, it's valid. So we're going to look at some of the gospel accounts in the book of Acts, the epistles, especially 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a powerful passage. A powerful testimony to the truth of the Christian message. So let's take some time and, and, uh, and break that down. I'm going to be reading um, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. If you hold to the message, I proclaim to you, unless you believe to no purpose. For I passed on to you. Now, I want you to pay attention to the things I'm going to say from this point forward. Pay attention to this. Look at the key points. I passed on to you as most important, what? That I also received. In other words, Paul didn't make it up. He's giving them what he taught. He, he was taught. That Christ, what? He died. But he died for our sins. Why? How? According to what? Scriptures. What were the scriptures in that day? Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Didn't have a New Testament. So according to the scriptures, and it says he was buried. He was raised on the third day. What? According to scripture. So in the Old Testament, it said it was going to happen, not just in the New Testament. And that he appeared. He appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Yeah, we'll tell you why it's Cephas is important in just a minute. And then to the twelve. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, least of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Wow. Powerful passage. Let's break that down. First of all, no credentialed scholar today questions that the Apostle Paul wrote that. And he wrote it in about A.D. 54, 55. Even those that just don't believe Christianity, they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe anything about what we believe, they know historically that this is valid. The Apostle Paul wrote this message. In A.D. 54, 55. But in that message is the crux of the entire gospel message. Is it not? It's all in there. It's powerful. We also know that this is most, most likely, almost certainly, an early creed. Now, why, what do I mean by creed? A creed is something that, that early Christians believed and they would learn to recite because many of those could not read and write. 
And so they would learn the principles about their faith in the form of a saying or a creed, like a poem, if you will. Sometimes it would be a hymn. Sometimes it would just be like a poem, a saying. And they would, they would repeat it over and over, and they would teach their children. So this uh, passage here was, was an early creed. And we know it's an early creed because, first of all, it contains proper names, which was not normally the way Paul would write. Secondly, it contains language in it that is not used by Paul elsewhere. It's non-Pauline language. So he didn't author this. He's passing on verbatim what he learned. And, and because it uses the name Cephas, it's most certainly this creed was originally written in Aramaic because Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. And so that means Aramaic. What's important about Aramaic? Paul is writing in Greek, but why, why is it important that this, this was originally done as a creed in Aramaic? The timing of what? Well, it's the timing, yes, the timing of what's going on. Aramaic was the everyday language in Israel during the first century. They spoke to each other in Aramaic, not Hebrew. They studied Hebrew Scripture, talked about Hebrew, read Hebrew at synagogue, but they conversed in Aramaic. So Jesus talked to His disciples in Aramaic. The people talked in Aramaic. So the fact that this was a creed written in Aramaic tells you where it came from and tells you when it was written. That's very important. So he says, uh, 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 Paul does in verse 3, he says he's passed on to them what he had received. Well, then, where did he receive it? When and from whom? Well, Galatians 1, verses 11 through 20, sort of tells you what that is. We're not going to look at that this evening. You can, you can look at that at another time. It'll be a good sermon. But in that passage, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul talks about how he went to see the people in Jerusalem. And when he came up there, the first time and when it happened, the second time and who he saw and what he did. So we see. And by the way, Galatians is another one of those undisputed books of Paul. Everybody knows that Paul wrote that. It's not debatable. So Paul wrote Galatians, and then he talks about how he went, was, uh, went out into the desert uh, for three years and then went up to Jerusalem and who he saw and what he did. So that's what he would have received this creed, most likely. So that means somewhere uh, uh, in the early 8030s, probably no more than five to eight years after the resurrection, Paul would have received this creed. Could have been before that, by the way. During his first visit, most likely to Jerusalem, and it was passed on to him by eyewitnesses, by Peter and John. And if he received it five years or so after the resurrection, that means it had to have been developed when? Sometime before that. So it is quite possible that this creed, this message that has the summation of the entire gospel message, tying it back to, to Old Testament prophecy, all the way to the resurrection and the purpose of the resurrection, was formatted, format, for, formatted probably no more than one to two years after the resurrection. That's when it would have been put together. And we know that also by the fact that it was done in Aramaic. So that's very important. Very early. And that means it's, it's more likely to be 
100% valid. Now, here's the thing. If Paul received it uh, uh, so early, then, we, then it's important that we understand what it has to say. Some of the things. Number one, it was very early, and that's very important because that means it's likely to be true. This doesn't have anything, didn't have time in there for uh, uh, fictitious accounts of the resurrection to have been integrated in and pollute the story. Very early. That's, that's, that, historically, that's, that's significant. This account parallels the account in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, which is also believed by scholars to be an early creed that, is, that Luke incorporated into the gospel message, his gospel uh, account, another creed. Wow. So here's what it does. It professes, or it professes the core of the Christian faith and the divinity of Christ. It ties Old Testament messianic prophecy to Jesus, and it, and it talks about that it comes from eyewitness testimony. In fact, depending on how you do the math from this account and other, the other accounts of uh, the resurrection, somewhere between 600 and 700 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Somewhere in that number. Paul talks about in his, this message 500 at one time. So somewhere between six and 700 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And here's the thing. The appearances were numerous enough and they're sufficiently long enough and over an extended period of time that it's very clear it was him. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a dream. And Paul says that this message that he's giving to the Corinthians is, is uh, 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 the same message that all the other eyewitnesses were also proclaiming at that very time. Look at verse 15, verse 11. He says, Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. You go down, and also verse 14 says the same thing. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation. Our preaching, and so is your faith. And then 15, we have found to be false witnesses, if so, about God, because we have testified about God that he raised him up, whom he did not raise up, in fact, the dead are not raised. If he didn't, then they are not. So anyway, he's talking about the they, the the, the we. So he's proclaiming the same message that all these other people of that day are proclaiming elsewhere. It's the same message, same creed, basic foundation. This Jesus was the Messiah from the Old Testament that was prophesied. He came for the forgiveness of sins. He died on a cross and he rose and he appeared to all these people. That's the message. Given in a testimony that's very, very early, right after the events, and, 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 and agreed to by even secular scholars as being an accurate summation. Now, they may not believe with the content of it, but they have no doubt that Paul did and that he wrote it. That's very, very important. So, the First Corinthians was written then by uh, the mid-80s, uh, uh, 50s, less than 25 years after the events, but it was presented to the Corinthians three years before because he says, I, you know, I'm writing right now 
what I told you before, and he told him before when he first came to Corinth to, 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 to form the church, so three witnesses, uh, three years before that. So we have an eyewitness account that at the very worst is 25 years old, but more likely only about two years or so removed from the actual historical event. Provides tremendous support for the validity of the resurrection. But it does something else. Because it's so firm in its understanding by scholars as being accurate that Paul actually said it, it then provides validity for the gospel accounts. You can trust the gospel accounts because they're based upon a, a detail of, of the summation of what Paul just said. Many um, uh, theologians believe that several of the gospel accounts about the resurrection are based upon early creeds and traditions, just like 1 Corinthians 15. And they were written long before the actual gospel were written. And they were incorporated in, in pieces of it. I can give you some of them. Matthew 28, uh, uh, different places in there. John 20, Luke 24. Repeated four-line formula consistently all the way through. When, the, when the, the, the gospel is presented in the gospel accounts, and even in the, uh, even in the uh, Acts and the, the, uh, the epistles, you, here's what you see. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was risen. Christ appeared. Now, everything else may be a little different, but those four uh, components are consistent. All of them say the same thing. So here's what we have. We have four independent New Testament Gospels. We have the book of Acts and several epistles that are all attesting to the same thing. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and why that's important. They give us all that. So here's some of the key evidence from the Gospels in the book of Acts that I want to highlight for you. Number one, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. They all say that. The tomb was empty. In fact, every scholar from that time says the tomb was empty. According to um, Gary Habermas, I know Gary, he's a brilliant uh, scholar on the resurrection. Uh, but he says there's 44 modern critical scholars that agree to that one fact. The tomb was empty. Never debated. It's never been denied by anybody at that time. No one denied the fact that the tomb was empty. The Jews didn't deny it. The Romans didn't deny it. If the tomb had been occupied, they would have done what? They would have produced a body to show that this Jesus could not have risen, risen from the dead. They would have disputed the apostles' claim. There's no ancient sources that claim the tomb was anything but empty. Everyone. Second, the guards would have been killed if somebody had stolen the body, but they weren't killed. What happened to the guards? They were paid a fee to go tell everybody that the disciples stole it. And that stayed, that stayed the, the course for, for a, a, at least 150 years after the fact. The Jews were saying that. Uh, in, throughout the Roman Empire. Third, the resurrected Jesus did some real tangible things with his witness, witnesses. Real tangible things. Look here. He ate with them. They ate food. He drank with them. He touched them. And they touched him. He dialogued. He had a conversation with them. Ghosts don't do that. 
Hallucinations don't do that. Only a live human can do that. Fourth, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, why is that important? Now, ladies, I don't want to start ducking here. Don't throw anything at me. Why, why, why is that important? They're what? Yeah. <laughs> but they wanted you to tell. Witness is a witness. You're supposed to tell. But why? Women did not have a voice. You realize that women in the first century, were, in the Jewish world, were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were considered to be unreliable. You could not trust what a woman said. That's true. I'm not making that up. That's a historical fact. Wow. Here's the thing. The writers of the Bible would not have used women to perpetuate a lie. If they were trying to get you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and they made this story up, the last thing they would say is that women witnessed it. Well, the first ones who come tell them. Would not have happened. It just wouldn't happen. But here's the thing. All four gospel accounts have women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. There's a sermon in there about the importance of women right there. But that's true. All four. Fifth, all the testimony about the resurrection appearances were either written by or taken directly from those who witnessed them. The six or seven hundred people who saw the resurrected Jesus. They gave the testimony. All the accounts come from those eyewitnesses. And lastly, there's no evidence that's ever been presented to refute the, Christmas, the Christian story. No one's been able to refute the Christian story based upon the resurrection. Have not been able to do it. And the Christians were raising havoc all over the Roman Empire, even in Rome itself. And as a result of that, Rome was persecuting them to no end. Why didn't they just refute the Christian claims and it'd be over? But they couldn't do it. They weren't able to do it. So there's substantial biblical and non-biblical evidence for the resurrection. But I think the most important proof of all has to do with the radically changed lives of the disciples after they've encountered the risen Jesus. So that leads me to the third proof for the resurrection, the disciples' faith. Their lives were changed forever. And they turned those lives all around. And all around them, they impacted people. And eventually, they forever changed the entire world and impacted every single human being living on it because of one event, the resurrection. That was it. They were delusioned. They were hiding until Jesus appeared to them. According to Jewish law, Jesus being executed on a cross made him a criminal who was a heretic, literally under the curse of God. That's what it meant. So they were hiding and, just, and, and didn't know what to believe, whether or not they could believe this whole story. In fact, they also thought they, might, they may be the next ones put on the cross. But something happened. They went from being timid to becoming bold proclaimers. Wow. They began proclaiming the resurrection from the very, very beginning. And this proclamation became one of the key messages that the disciples had. 
They changed how they did church, if you will. The disciples would not have allowed themselves to have been beaten, imprisoned, and killed for what they knew to be a lie. Now, someone might die and be beaten for something they, that was a lie, but they thought it was the truth. But if you know you made it up and you knew it was a lie and you didn't have to be beaten and killed, all you had to do was say, I made it up, then you would have said, I made it up. You would not have been beaten, imprisoned, and killed for something you know for a fact was a lie. They died for what they knew to be the truth based upon their own eyewitness. Not a single one ever recanted. Not one. Even though all but one died for their faith. And the one that didn't die was placed in um, solitary confinement, if you will, in the Isle of Patmos. Though they all suffered. But they never recanted. Perhaps, though, the most dramatic proof of changed lives involves two other very important men. You know who they are. These guys weren't even followers of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. They were not prejudiced witnesses. In other words, they had no reason to, to want to make this be true. In fact, just the opposite, every reason for it not to be true. They didn't believe Jesus' message prior to his appearance to them as the resurrected Lord. Begin by looking at James, a half-brother of Jesus, and we know he was a real person because Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about him, said he was the brother of Jesus, so we know he was a real person. James did not follow Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Just look at the Bible. He thought Jesus was out of his mind. Look at Mark chapter 3 and chapter 6 and John chapter 7. James did not become a believer in the brother Jesus until he encountered Jesus, the risen Lord. Not until he saw him alive. And we know that because Paul said so in his account here. Appeared to James. He became a radical Christ follower and the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he died eventually for, for Christ. And that death was attested by Josephus. So we know it did. It happened. And then, of course, there's Paul. Paul was, was a disciple of the, one of the most respected rabbis in the history of Judaism, Rabbi Gabriel. Just read the, if you read the Jewish Talmud, and I've read quite a bit of it. Well, not a lot of it, but I've read some of it. And, it, and I've read particularly some of his writings, Gamaliel. And it's amazing. Highly respected. In fact, he was part of the Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death. Paul, or Saul, was his protege. And it is quite possible that young Saul could have been right there that evening when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, sitting in the, in the, in the background because of the importance of Gamaliel uh, in those events. So here's the thing. After Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus, he became a radical Christ follower, even to the point of death. So James and Paul are just two non-disciples who gave their lives in defense of the gospel, proclaiming the truth of the resurrection to the very, very end. Also, of course, it was this belief 
and the reality of the resurrection that led to the church almost immediately to begin worshiping on the first day of the week. The first day of the week became a worship day as a perpetual celebration of the resurrection. That's why they met on the first day of the week. Now, the Jews still, still observed the Jewish Sabbath, but they worshiped the Lord on the Lord's day, resurrection day, on the first day of the week. Very early on. All the early disciples did that as well. So, what does all this really mean? What's the implications of all this stuff? So that leads me to the last thing I want to talk about this evening. But before I do, I have to make a confession. I have to tell you something I've not shared with anybody before. I mean, this is you know, our last time in our series. So it's the only time I'll get to share this with you. You may have guessed it by my glasses, my, you know, manly physique. But here's the thing. I am Superman. Why are you laughing? Who believes I'm Superman? <laughs> Coast Guard guy, you know how they are. They believe anything. No, what if I did something to prove it? What if I flew around the sanctuary and landed here? Would you believe me then? What if I used my x-ray vision and I burned a hole right up there, so big that we could all look up and see the sky? Would you believe that I was Superman? Well, some of you might. It might be possible. You'd go home and you'd tell everybody, say, hey, you'd never believe I met the real Superman. At church, you don't even believe what he looks like. He's this old guy with glasses. <laughs> Here's the thing. Making a claim about something is meaningless unless you can present proof that is true. You see, I may be a super guy. My grandkids think I'm a super guy. But I'm not Superman. Because I can't give you any proof that I am. So here's the thing. None of the guys. Give me back to my slide. Yeah. All these people here, none of them are Superman either. They're just actors pretending to be Superman. Just like every other guru, religious guru, from every other religions who claim to represent or in some cases even be a god. They're just making claims. They're just pretending. They have no proof. So here's the truth. Now you can get my slide. Here's the proof. Here's the truth. Jesus proved everything that he said was true. Everything. By rising from the grave in the same yet glorified body, just as he had and the Old Testament had predicted. He makes claims and he proves it to be true. That makes everything he said true. No, oh, by the way, no other leader of a major religion claimed to have come back from the dead. None. Better yet, none of them ever predicted that they would. In fact, none of them ever fulfilled one previously made prophecy about themselves. None. Well, Jesus fulfilled over 70 prophecies made about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, made hundreds of years before he walked on this earth. That's the difference. 
because of the validity of the resurrection, Jesus was and is exactly who he claimed himself to be. So what did he claim? Well, there are 11 major claims made by Jesus regarding his deity alone. I know you can't see that very well, but I'll go through it. Number one, he claimed to be God by referring to himself as, a, as, as, as I am. By referring to himself as I am, he's referring to, to himself as the great I am, the covenant name of, of, of God. Number two, he claimed to have the glory of God. And you see all these passages that support all this. Three, he, he claimed to have, be equal with God. He claimed to be one with the Father. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. And to be the son of someone in the ancient Middle East meant that you were the same as his nature. That's what it meant. So when Jesus says he was the son of God, he says, I'm the same nature as God. That means I'm one with them. I'm the same. And it's for that reason that the Jews accused him of blasphemy and took up stones and wanted to kill him. For that reason. They understood what it meant. Seven, he claimed to be uh, uh, God by uh, uh, worthy of all the honor due only to God. He took it for himself. He claimed to be God by accepting worship. Only God could be worshipped. He claimed to be God by having the power to forgive sins. Only God could forgive sins. He claimed to be God by requesting prayer in his name. And lastly, maybe more importantly, he claimed to be the only way to God the Father. Not one way, the only way. And if he is the only way, that means what? If he's the only way, what does that mean? There can be no other way. That's it. While Jesus never made a proclamation, like I am God, all his claims point to him being God. He didn't claim to be a great teacher. You know that? He never claimed to be a prophet, even though he was both of those. He never claimed to be that claim. What he claimed about himself was essentially that he was God incarnate. And the resurrection proves that to be true. So here's, here's why the resurrection is so important. It's a capstone of the Christian faith. It really is. It proves both the divinity of Jesus and the validity of every one of his claims. In some ways, it even proves the existence of God because only God could raise a person from the dead and God would not raise what? A heretic from the dead. The resurrection separates Christianity from all other religions and faith systems. Most every religion believes in Jesus. You know that? Most every single one. I've read quite a bit of the Quran and talks where it talks about Jesus. And Buddha uh, uh, will actually claim, Buddhists will, will claim that Jesus was real. Hindus believe he could be even a, a, a God person. Even atheists. I know atheists will say, oh yeah, Jesus was real. He's just a good teacher, a good moral teacher. Yeah, everyone believes in Jesus. But none of them, not a single one, believe in the Jesus of the Bible, the, the Jesus of Christianity. And none of them None of these faith systems have a founder of their faith that was physically raised from the dead. And third, the resurrection provides genuine hope. 
not false hope, not empty hope, that depends on, on to some degree on some of the things that we, we have to do. Uh-uh. It's the evidence of all that God has done on our behalf. It's the genuine and undeniable hope for our salvation and our internal life and ultimately our own resurrection. That's what it means. These reasons are why the resurrection is so important. You see, if, if it's valid, then no other so-called inconsistencies that critics claim that are in the Bible or any misguided church doctrine can make the Christian faith invalid. It cannot make it invalid. If the resurrection is true, then the Christian faith is true. Nothing can invalidate the Christian faith and no other faith claim can be valid. You see, our faith is not in vain. It is not worthless because Christ did raise from the grave. Isn't that good? So God has, He has. He's acted repeatedly throughout history to reveal His love and His purpose to the world. But Jesus claimed not just to be one of those revelations. Oh, no. He claimed to be the ultimate and final revelation. If God raised Him from the dead and the preponderance of evidence supports that He did, then we have good reason to listen to Jesus' claims, the ones I outlined for you, and to live a life in obedience to Him as Lord. Remember, God would not raise a heretic or a lunatic or a myth or probably even a good teacher from the dead. He had only raised His Son. And the good news is He has. He has raised Him. So here's the bottom line. There's no magic or illusion involved with the resurrection of Jesus. It happened just as Jesus Himself said that it would. Therefore, He is exactly who He claimed Himself to be, the eternal God in human flesh. So here's my challenge to you. If you're a Christ follower, then you need to share these truths with the Dr. Lawrences that are in your world. And if you don't have a Dr. Lawrence in your world, you need to get one. Yeah, the risen Jesus provided life-changing encounters, life-changing encounters with His disciples and non-disciples alike. And He's done that for nearly 2,000 years. And the risen Jesus, well, He still provides life-changing encounters with people today. Still does. And He wants to do that with everybody, including you, if you don't know Him. He'll do that no matter what your relationship is with God. Here's the truth. No one, no one meets the risen Jesus without their life being impacted. No one. And if you know Him today, then you know what I'm talking about. You know how your life's been impacted. And if you don't know Him, then I want to invite you to let us introduce you to this risen Jesus right now. And I promise you, I promise you, your life will be changed forever. Let's pray together. Father God, we do love you and praise you and thank you so much for, uh, for being here this evening. And uh, uh, I pray that our hearts and our minds have been opened to the reality of your resurrection.
Not just that it's true, the evidence points to that, but that we grasp and understand the importance of that in our lives and how we should be changed and how we should proclaim that to all who do not know. For you want everyone, everyone to encounter the risen Lord. And you're depending upon us to make it happen. Be with us, Lord. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.